Hi there, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm managing editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing, a mass device resource. What would a medical device manufacturing executive prefer, I wonder? I mean, you know, a Form 483 from the FDA or some root canal work? I mean, it's a tough question. And while a 483 can mean a warning letter about a serious problem, that's not always the case. FDA, in fact, is trying to make the process of dealing with a 483 less painful. So to help us walk through what's going on, we have Mike Drews. Mike is a regulatory consultant based in Southern California. He has years of experience working for both medical device companies and FDA. Mike, welcome back to MDO. Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Yeah, great to hear from you. So I guess just to start out, I mean, so what is the process that's that's being described in this guidance? I mean, what is FDA doing? So it's a great question, Chris. And again, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about this. The process, in fact, is, is very simple. Basically, what happens is the company undergoes a manufacturing inspection. That inspection could either be pre- or post-market. Um, they receive a warning letter, uh, perhaps, or a, a 4A3 as a result of that inspection. The next step would be, obviously, the company analyzes the situation, tries to figure out uh, what was the problem and what to do about it. They propose a corrective action or a solution. And this is the new part, Chris. The company will then submit their analysis and their proposed corrective action or solution to the FDA before they implement it. And upon uh, receipt, FDA will evaluate that information and they will provide non-binding feedback. And that's an important phrase, uh, Chris, non-binding feedback on that proposed corrective action or solution. Uh, in other words, does FDA buy that the solution that you're proposing to whatever the problem is, is an appropriate solution? So that, at a high level, Chris, is the process that's, uh, that's described in this new, in this new guidance. So tell me if I'm hearing this right. This sounds like it's it's just establishing a a more informal way that you can basically answer the question, you know, what what does FDA want from us? Well, uh, yeah, so so basically um uh, you know, to put this in context, the reason why uh FDA is setting up this process is because Oftentimes, companies do get 483s. They do sometimes get a warning letter. They implement changes, but they don't have the opportunity to vet those changes, so to speak, with the FDA. And as a consequence, upon uh, a future inspection, they get dinged again because they're, although they tried to solve the problem, um, the solution that they came up with is not, in FDA's eyes, an adequate solution. So FDA is doing nothing more than creating a mechanism, if you will, uh, for, communi- for, for companies to communicate with FDA on the manufacturing side. This is, in principle, Chris, very similar to the pre-submission process, which you and I have talked about in the past many times. But this is more on the manufacturing side as opposed to the um, uh, pre-market side. Yeah, so it's kind of like a, a pre-submission process for for um, you know, correcting manufacturing potential manufacturing problems for stuff that's already already on the market, I, I, I'm surprised. I mean, they haven't already had this. Well, <laughs> yeah, oh, they, I mean, <laughs> the, they, the the short answer, Chris, is, is is no, they haven't. At least not a formal mechanism for doing this. And by the way, um, it's interesting that you pick up on my pre-submission metaphor because I have suggested to the agency that we that we really do not need a process like was created in this 
guidance. Instead, what I would prefer to have personally is another form of a pre-submission meeting that was specifically uh, um, for addressing manufacturing uh, um, concerns like this. Um, I think that would have a lot more advantages over this particular process. But the most important thing is that we have a dialogue between the company and the agency such that, as I said, if you do find a problem upon manufacturing inspection, there's some way that we can work on it collaboratively to make sure that the solution that we come up with is, in fact, an appropriate solution for both sides of the, of the equation, for the company as well as the FDA. So with this non-binding process, I mean, so what's the what's the timeline on it, Mike? So good question. So the uh, according to the regulation, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the company is supposed to submit their response to the FDA in a timely manner, and that's the phrase that is mentioned in the regulation. FDA's interpretation of timely manner in the guidance is within 15 business days. So within 15 business days of uh, receiving the feedback on the inspection, the company needs to submit their proposed solution back to the FDA. The FDA intends to provide this non-binding feedback within 45 calendar days of receiving the, um, the company's response. But most importantly for your audience to remember, Chris, is I'm not a fan of these uh, regulatory absolutes like this. In other words, uh, whether it's 15 days or 45 days, um, it really has to be taken into uh, context the situation. So if this is a post-market inspection and the product is already on the market and there's a problem that's leading to um, uh, that, that might have, for example, an impact on the safety and efficacy of the device, then obviously that's something that we need to deal with ASAP. On the other hand, if it's a post-market inspection and it's leading to, say, a cosmetic defect, that's not really something that I worry about and timeline is less critical. And the third example I would offer is if it's a pre-market inspection. As your audience knows, for 510Ks and de novos, pre-market inspections are not necessary, but for a PMA, you do have a pre-market inspection. The product is not even yet on the market. So quite frankly, what's the point of having to respond within a certain number of days if the product is not even on the market yet? So simply put, according to the guidance, the company has 15 days to respond and then the um, to offer their solution, and then the, the FDA has 45 calendar days to respond to that solution. But it really needs to be taken to in, in, in context um, uh, those, those numbers. Yeah, it kind of goes along, you know, with kind of the idea that I mean, there there are 483s and there and there are 483s, and there's you know different levels of seriousness about you know what you know, what FDA is pointing out. I and mean, that kind of leads to another question that, that I have here, which is, I mean, okay, so the, these not, this non-binding process, does it apply to all 483s? Uh, yes, it would apply to all instances where you get some sort of a finding on a manufacturing inspection. Now, it's an interesting question because oftentimes there's feedback provided by the FDA uh, during an inspection or perhaps even after an inspection that is not in the form of a 483 or a warning letter. It might just simply be verbal feedback. It might be suggestions on what to do. That would be much less formal. 
whether or not that this process um, uh, applies to those situations is not mentioned in the guidance. Uh, but I would take the intent of this guidance uh, to mean that that would include it. So, for example, if a, if a FDA inspector makes a suggestion or asks a question uh, as part of the inspection but does not actually issue a 483, and I've seen this happen many, many times, then I would like to be able to have the ability to go back to uh, the inspector or the FDA after the inspection and say, thank you for your suggestion. Here is how we have decided to implement it. Or alternatively, thank you for suggestion. We don't feel it's appropriate to implement it in our particular situation, and here are all the reasons why. So again, Chris, I, unlike a lot of other regulatory folks, I do not take a literal interpretation to any regulation, including this. Instead, I try to understand the intent of the regulation itself. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I mean, how much, from your experience, I mean, how much do people rotate in and out of the FDA when it comes to being inspectors? Because I can just see in in my mind, if if you're having enough people rotating in and out of the agency, you might have one inspector who was involved with the original 483 who told you in this non-binding process verbally, like, oh, you know, you guys should do X, Y, Z. You know, and then by the time you're getting it wrapped up, you might have a different inspector. I mean, could that be a, a problem with this? It certainly could be, and uh, I would actually say not only could it be, but it, it sometimes is. Uh, in any organization, whether it's FDA or a company, there's going to be changes in personnel. People people leave, people take new jobs, and God forbid somebody get hit by a bus, and then and the next inspection, right. uh, you know, you get somebody else come in, and they have a different interpretation of the exact same uh, words. But to be fair, Chris, this is not unique to manufacturing inspections. Exactly the same thing happens in the approval process as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the FDA politicians will say it really doesn't matter what reviewer or what inspector that you're dealing with because they're all following the same rules the same way. But with all due respect, Chris, does anybody really believe that? Right. I, I can give the same set of rules to 10 different people and get 10 drastically different interpretations. So the short answer to your question is that can and does happen, but we have to you know, have strategies to deal with that. Right. I mean, so, so it's just it's kind of the nature of the beast when it comes to, to you know, being regulated, you know, as an industry. Um, I mean, so non-binding, what, what does that mean? I mean, that, that means I don't get held to what? they're they're telling me or or what i say so yeah so basically non-binding means you can do this uh so so this is what we're suggesting uh and you can follow it or not uh but fda you know obviously doesn't want to paint themselves into a box they will uh into a corner so to speak they will always um, provide the appropriate caveats about um, this is based on the information that you prov have provided. Um, you know, if something changes, then our suggestions, uh, you know, or our decision, you know, might change. So non-binding, just like in the context of a guidance document, non-binding means exactly what it what it says, non-binding. But I also want the audience to remember, Chris, that that street runs in two directions. So not only is what FDA tells you non-binding, but what you tell the FDA is also non-binding in the sense that you can make changes. So, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Oh, that's, that's, so that's kind of it's, it, it's kind of a way to kind of hash things out without being, being held, held to it exactly, you know, down, down the road. But, you know, it, it definitely helps 
maybe cut through the bureaucratic jargon and figure out what what needs to be done. So, so that it sounds. I mean, that sounds good. I mean, is this? I mean, is this new anyway? I'm just still kind of surprised that you know this hasn't been an option in the past. Well, it's it's definitely not new. We've had the uh, opportunity to have these kinds of discussions in the past, but not in sort of a formal or an organized way. In other words, companies have always had the opportunity to ask for feedback on their proposed corrective actions, but there was no standardized process for providing that that feedback. So when we say that this program is new, and I put that word in sort of air quotes. Yeah, it's a new um, program, it, yeah. It's, yes, it's it's a, it's a it's a new program, but it really it's not a new idea. It just simply formalizes what some of us in this industry have been doing for a very long time, and it's something that I've recommended companies for to for a very long time as well. Even without this more formal process, as we talked about before, Chris, it's very similar um, in in thinking to the precept. Um, and as I hinted at earlier, I think the better mechanism for dealing with these kinds of uh, concerns is a pre-sub. But this is the mechanism that FDA set up, at least for right now. Um, most important for the audience, Chris, as we've talked about many times before, is it's always my recommendation to communicate with the agency in, be it in advance of uh, either the submission or, in this case, in advance of implementing your your potential your proposed solution to your manufacturing problem to make sure that everybody's pulling in the same direction, everybody's on the same page, because that can can eliminate so many more problems down the line. I remember your advice with pre-sub meetings was not to go and ask FDA what you should do, but, but go in and kind of say, hey, our plan is to do X, Y, Z. What do you think about that? Because you don't want to open the door to, you know, to, to FDA, you know, like putting a bunch of new new requirements on you. I mean, is that a good idea with these non-binding things like okay you've 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 told us about this problem you know here we're going to solve it with xyz what what do you think I mean, is that a good way to to handle these as well absolutely correct my advice is spot on exactly the same as a matter of fact i'm glad that you remembered that uh principle chris it's one of my regulatory mantra and that is uh tell don't ask lead don't follow and so I would offer exactly the same advice here when it comes to the, the dealing with the results of these manufacturing inspections. By no means would I advocate going to the FDA and say, you dinged us on this particular issue. We have this particular problem with our process. Will you please tell us how to fix it? And believe me, Chris, I have seen companies do exactly that. Instead, I'm a strong advocate of, okay, here's the potential problem. And here is our solution, and here are all the reasons why our solution makes sense. Um, so, um, again, communication is very important, but remember my mantra, tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. You know, and just kind of going along with that theme, all right, so you do the, this uh, non-binding you know, discussion with FDA, that you, get rec- you, know, you have recommendations come out of it. I mean, what if you just decide, you know what, this wasn't a good idea? I mean, I mean, is that okay for a manufacturer to do that? Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, uh, we have to make the best decisions that we can, given the information that we have. But it's certainly uh, uh, conceivable, and this does, in fact, happen, that a little bit further down the road, we get additional information, <clears throat> pardon me, and that causes us to reevaluate our 
solution that we came up with, say, six months ago, and perhaps we come up with a better solution. In those cases, once again, I would um, uh, advocate going to the FDA prophylactically, perhaps uh, using a version of this process that we've been discussing, and actually this scenario is not included in this new guidance, but perhaps it should be, uh, be able to go back to the FDA and say, look, this is the solution that we implemented six months ago or a year ago, but now we have additional information and now we've come up with a better solution and here are the details of that solution and here are all the reasons why. So again, it's it's a very simple question, Chris. Does the want to, does the company want to be proactive or reactive? Do you want to wait until FDA comes and you know finds a problem, or even worse, there's a problem with your product that causes uh, potential harm to patients, or do you want to go to the FDA in advance and say, you know, hey, here's a better solution that we came up with. Usually I'm a fan of the of the latter, of the proactive approach as opposed to the reactive approach. But regrettably, Chris, that's very uncommon in our industry. Most of the, the manufacturers in our industry are much more reactive as opposed yeah. to proactive. And yes. I can give you a perfect example. One of the companies that I work with um, a couple of years ago, they got pinged on a manufacturing inspection because, long story short, they were not following a particular industry standard when it came to manufacturing that their particular device. And the, um, and the inspector pointed it out to the company, and the company said, yes, you're correct. Let us explain to you why we're not following this standard. And simply put, Chris, the company came <laughs> up with a better way a way to exceed the industry standard um, to, 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 to make their device. And the inspector said, oh, gee, thank you very much for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, by the way, here's your 43 anyway, because they were not following the industry standard. Wow. This is unfortunately, Chris, exactly what gives regulation a bad name. Because not only have we not created incentives for companies to uh, make changes and make improvements. <clears throat> in some cases, we have created disincentives for companies to do that. And I would, I would hope that everybody, both in the industry as well as FDA, would agree that that is not the intent of regulation, even though that is exactly sometimes, anyway, what happens. That's That's, so it sounds like, I mean, it can be non-binding or binding, but there's, from your standpoint, there's a, uh, there's a problem underneath that uh, still needs to be addressed. That's correct, Chris. And, you know, in the context of non-binding versus binding, I'll use the example that I use in guidance documents all the time. Um, first of all, when it comes to a guidance, there's no such thing as, as, as uh, draft or final. It's all a, a work in progress. Um, and so when FDA says, we suggest that you do this, that's code speak for them saying that we expect that you're going to do this unless you come back and tell us otherwise and, prove, and show us why that's not appropriate. So um, unlike a lot of folks in this industry would, would believe, Chris, FDA cannot tell us what to do. They absolutely cannot do that. They can make a suggestion, and then it's up to us to either implement that suggestion or to go back to them and say, gee, thank you for your suggestion, but we're not going to implement it because it's not appropriate, and here are all the reasons why. Yeah. Yeah, so so, so then kind of like the overall, you know, takeaway is, is, is like, is, is that, okay, we have an informal process, but 
you know, it's it's still it still comes down to you know kind of like that old that old Boy Scout Scout motto: "Be prepared." You've got to you know defend yeah. not just what you do, but why. That's exactly right. And as a former, not just Boy Scout, but but an Eagle Scout myself, Chris, <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of that motto. So, you know, while we have you here, I mean, so I mean, we've got this guidance. We've got all kinds of, of stuff just like rolling out of FDA right now. You know, as Scott Gottlieb departs as administrator, I uh, just, um, just curious, any kind of uh, educated guess on you know, how much of this is going to stick in the future? I mean, generally when we have administrators uh, switch at FDA, I mean, how much does the stuff that the outgoing administrator do, uh, how much does that stick around? Well, that's a great question, Chris. And, you know, for the record, um, I, I, I was very disappointed uh, to hear a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Gottlieb announced that he was leaving the agency whether anybody believes he's leaving because he wants to spend more time with his family in Connecticut or not, I guess that's up to our audience to decide. Um, but I said publicly many times that uh, that Scott Gottlieb has the potential to change FDA in some very significant ways, much more so than probably any other FDA commissioner in the last 20 or 30 years. And although he did start to implement some of those changes, um, I think it's regrettable that he's leaving the agency now when clearly there's a lot more change that needs to happen. Whether or not the new interim administrator uh, continues, you know, in Dr. Gottlieb's footsteps, time will tell. I I, I don't know the new person coming in. Uh, I do know uh, Dr. Gottlieb at least a little bit. Um, Time will tell, but... um, you know, it's not a surprise that we're seeing a flurry of uh, guidances coming out now in literally the last uh, few weeks because just like in, in, in politics, you know, he wants to make sure that he gets credit for, you know, a lot of these things. And um, the, the, the simplest thing I would say, Chris, is in terms of things that will stick, to use your phrase, I think that the, the things that will stick are the ones that are the least restu- disruptive to the agency. Regrettably, the things that may not stick are the ones that are most disruptive to the agency, and it's those most disruptive ones that I think we really need the most. Wow! So, well, I guess we'll we'll see how how things play out. Well, Mike, thanks again. It's always always good to have you on here. Well, thank you, Chris. Pleasure to to speak with you, um, and I look forward to, to talking again. Sounds great. Well, this is Chris Newmarker for Medical Design and Outsourcing. Thanks again for listening.